If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be opening to Genesis chapter 23. If you didn't open with Riley, we're going to spend our time tonight in Genesis chapters 23 and 24. We won't read every verse in those chapters, but you may want to have the whole context open in front of you, and I'll have the verses we'll read up here on the screen. We are down to our last two lessons in the life of Abraham. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the study. I, I enjoy these walking through the lives of people in the Bible and just seeing the ups and downs and what they went through. And we learn so much from both their successes and their failures. We've seen so much in Abraham's life. We've seen him fail. We've seen him lie about his, who his wife was out of fear, I guess, that God wasn't going to take care of him. We've seen the bad results that came from that. We've seen most of his life has been waiting for those promises about a child to come along. He had 25 years, at least most of the the chapters we have in the Bible, 25 years of his life waiting for that son to come. And then last week, in chapter 22, God said, all right, now I want you to take that child and sacrifice him. And to Abraham's credit, he was going to do it. Um, God apparently just wanting to show the world what faith looked like, and maybe even foreshadowing what God himself would do when Jesus would come to earth to really die for us. And so here we only have a couple lessons left. Um, I've called tonight's lesson, Taking Care of Family. We start to see the next generation coming along in Abraham's life. So as we always do, we'll walk through the chapters, see what happens, and then take a few lessons from it at the end. All right, chapter 23 to start with. The first section, first two verses, Sarah, Abraham's wife, passes away in verses 1 and 2. We'll see it here. Now Sarah lived 127 years. And remember, if you haven't been with us for this series... um, Early in the Bible, people lived much longer than they do today. And you start to see that change after the flood. After the flood times, those, those years really start decreasing quickly until very soon it's, it's similar to what our ages are today. People wonder if maybe something about the flood changed the atmosphere, changed the world we live in. Perhaps that's what's going on. But Sarah lives to 127. So if you do the math, Abraham is 137. Remember, he's 10 years older. He will live to 175, and so he's still got, what is it, 38 years left in his life, 38 years to go. Uh, We'll find out next week he's going to remarry. He's going to have more kids um, after Sarah's passing, but, and we don't know when when they were married. We don't know what age they were. Uh, People often married young, although we'll see here tonight, Isaac was 40 years old when he marries, Um, but people usually guess that Abraham and Sarah were probably married over 100 years. That's incredible, isn't it? If that really was what's going on, uh, just the ups and downs that they had been through. We, we don't get to see, I, I, let me put it this way, I wish we could see more of what's going on there in verse 2. Because it says, Sarah dies in the land of Canaan. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Uh, there's got to be a whole lot behind that verse 2, doesn't there? For Abraham to mourn and weep for his wife of probably a hundred something years. And all the the struggles and the conversations of, are we going to have the child? Are we not? What Leaving home together and going off to, to, they didn't even know where, and God guiding them through all that. Like, they had seen so much together. And for her to pass on, this had to be a really difficult uh, time in Abraham's life. And so Sarah passes on. Life is changing. They're, they're getting older. And Abraham buys a burial place in verses 3 through 20. We won't read this whole section. But this becomes a pretty important thing because Sarah will be buried in this place that Abraham's going to end up with. Abraham will be buried there. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah will be buried there. Uh, Jacob will be buried there. And Leah will be buried there. And in fact, it's a place that we think we know where it is today. 
And uh, there's been a structure built over it now, but you can Wikipedia it. I hope you won't do that right now. But after services, if you want to Wikipedia the place of Abraham's burial, you can find that. And maybe if you and I grow up to be president of the United States one day, maybe we can request to get entrance into the tomb of Abraham. Because I understand you have to be a really, really big deal to, to see it today. But anyway, he buys a burial place here. And here's what he does. Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth. So these are the the Canaanites around him. He says, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Uh, Remember, Abraham's very wealthy. He uh, He's probably felt like a mighty prince among them. They say, bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. What most scholars think, though, is Abraham didn't just want a burial place. He wanted a a spot of land that he could actually buy for for the burial, not just borrowing someone else's burial place. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. He's he's humble through this whole thing. If he really is the the wealthy like a prince among them, I guess he could have uh, demanded some things, but he doesn't. He spoke with them saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Zephron the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah which he owns, which is at the end of his field, for the full price let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. And so they do that. They go and they bring Ephron in and they they have this conversation. If you have it in front of you, um, Ephron, Ephron says, Most people think he way overcharged Abraham here because what he says is it was 400 shekels of silver. And we don't live in those times to know, you know, what's a lot and all that. But but he says, hey, what is 400 shekels of silver between you and me? (laughs) Well, that was a whole lot (laughs) between anybody. But but Abraham just pays it. You know, he, he wants the field. He wants to be able to bury his wife in this cave that would become a very special place for their family. So he he pays um It pays for the cave and the field. And verse 19 is the chapter ends. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. It is interesting that he buries her in Canaan. It wasn't uncommon for people to travel long distances to go bury people back home where they were born around their family. If you remember uh, years later when Jacob will die in Egypt, uh, they will have the long procession. Joseph leads the procession back to Canaan to bury him right here in this cave, actually, but, but back home. And they take the long procession. That wasn't uncommon. It was important to be buried back with your people. But Canaan's now their home. And so they wanted to be buried here. I wonder if there was a conversation behind that. But, but Abraham wanted them to be buried here in Canaan, the land God had promised them. This is now their home. So they don't go back to Mesopotamia to bury Sarah. They, they start their own burial site right here in Canaan. So in chapter 24, Abraham sends to find a wife for his son Isaac. As you put the ages together, this is about two or three years after uh, Sarah's passing. Isaac is about 40 years old. Uh, He doesn't have a wife yet at this point. And this is still the day and time where usually families decided who married who. Um, Whole different world than what we're used to here in American culture. 
the, one of the sources I've been using by Swindoll, he says, and I'd love to see this information rather than just trust him on it, but he says you can see a lot of statistics of, of many cultures today that still do marriage this way, where the families decide who marries who, and that a lot of the outcomes are actually better in that system, where the families just pick the spouses for each other. I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of that, but either way, uh, we have responsibilities in marriage, I suppose, whether our family picks it or whether we pick it. Um, but Abraham here in this day, he's, he wants to find a wife for Isaac, and so it's time for the families to start choosing, and here's what he does. I love verse 1. This is the first verse that Riley read just a minute ago. Now Abraham was old. I don't like it just because it says he's old, but I like the rest of it. Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And I like that because if you remember, that was part of God's promise way back in Genesis 12. Leave your homeland, I will bless you. He was asking Abraham to trust him. I will bless you. And now as he's getting older, he's able to look back and God has blessed him just like he said he would. So Abraham said to his servant, the oldest servant in his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh. I'll keep reading there in just a second. But first of all, who's that servant, the oldest in his household? It doesn't say his name here in chapter 24. A lot of people think it's a guy referred back to in chapter 15, Eliezer of Damascus. And we think that because here in chapter 15, this is when Isaac has not been born yet. And Abraham's saying to God, I know you promised a son, but... The heir of my house, like if I died tonight, Eliezer of Damascus is my head servant. He would own everything. He'd be the one we'd pass all our stuff down to. If Eliezer has not died by this point, I guess that's possible. But if he hasn't died, maybe this is Eliezer who, who comes in and Abraham asks him to take charge of this. And so Abraham says to that servant, whether it's Eliezer or, or the, the next person after he had passed on, who had charge of all he owned, put your hand under my thigh. And there must have been something, some symbolism there to, to put your hand under someone's thigh and make a promise. Uh, maybe just this, almost like a handshake perhaps, but, but something even more personal. I, I will do what I've said I would do. Put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. I don't know why Abraham doesn't want Isaac to have a son or have a wife from the sons of the Canaanites. Um, I don't know why he doesn't want that. Maybe um, years later we'll see Rebecca, his daughter-in-law, will feel like she doesn't like the, the children of, of this area either. And so this would, this would happen again. Maybe there was just a moral problem. Maybe there was the immorality that he couldn't stand. But what he says, I want you to go back to my country and my relatives and take a wife from my son Isaac. But you remember back in his home country at Mesopotamia, they're not worshiping the one true God there either. And so I don't know why Abraham wanted, maybe it was just the family thing. He trusted the families that he would know from back there. Maybe he trusted the morals that were taught back there more than he trusted the morals in Canaan. But for whatever reason, Abraham says, do not let Isaac marry someone from this area, from Canaan. Go back home, take a wife for my son Isaac there. You notice Isaac doesn't go. Again, this is the family's choose your spouse back then. You go find a spouse for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? So let's say I go, Abraham, and I find somebody who would be great for Isaac, but she don't want to come here. Do I get Isaac and let him go back to Mesopotamia? And Abraham says, do not do that. 
beware that you do not take my son back there. Why? Because God made promises. This is our home now. We, we just buried Sarah here. This is our home. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Let me just mention a couple things that jump out at me about that passage. First of all, since God had promised this land to Abraham, He's tenaciously holding on to this as his new home, isn't he? This was where the family was supposed to be now. In fact, it would get to the point where his grandson, Jacob, when Joseph was taking the people to Egypt to keep them alive because the famine was so bad, Jacob didn't want to leave Canaan because his father and his grandfather, Abraham, had really wanted to stay here with the promise of God. And it took God speaking to Jacob to say, it's okay to go to Egypt. I'll bring you back. I'll bring your people back. And and you see it here. You see Abraham saying, this is where God said we're supposed to be. So don't bring Isaac back. You bring him here. Also love the end of this verse. Did you notice who he said is going to go with his his servant? He says, God is going to send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. God's angel is going to lead the way. There's going to be an angel from God who is going to help make this work out. That's interesting. We'll come back to it before we're done. But, but he says he's going to lead the way. If the woman's not willing to follow you, verse 8, then you'll be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then you have the servant's prayer. So whether it's Eliezer or whoever the servant is, he, he travels back to Mesopotamia. We'll see here in verse 10. The servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now Nahor is one of Abraham's brothers. I don't know if that means there is a city named Nahor now, that he's become so powerful and wealthy, that, or if it just means his hometown, well, we don't know. But he goes to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. A lot of things in the Bible happen by wells, and there's a simple reason for that. You have to have water to live, and people don't have indoor plumbing for most of human history. We forget how spoiled we are to be able to walk to the kitchen sink and turn on whatever temperature water we want, whenever we want it. Um, we were sitting at a preacher meeting several years ago, and there was a guy who had been doing mission work in Africa, and he, he said, we use exactly two and a half gallons of water every day, and we know how much we use because you got to carry it from the well back to the house. You learn how much you use when you got to carry every gallon along the way. And, and so we're, we're very spoiled in that regard. We should be thankful for that blessing uh, in a lot of ways. But a lot of things happen by wells because you have to go to the well. And so this was a place where people talked. This was a place where people caught up with each other. And so he knows... I can see the people of the area if I just go to the well. Everyone's got to come to the well to get water probably every day, unless you own your own well, and that was only the wealthiest. He said, and this is his prayer, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring, 
and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. I like that it's not, he's not just asking for a sign. You know, let her be wearing a red dress or something like that. What he, what he's, he's asking for a character quality here, isn't he? God, let, let, this, let whoever it is, let her show hospitality and kindness in a way that I will know, hey, this is the one you're wanting me to bring back to Isaac. And so then what happens in the rest of the chapter, we're going to hop and skip through it. Rebecca becomes Isaac's wife. Rebecca is Abraham's grandniece. I'm not always good at family tree stuff, but it is Abraham's brother's granddaughter, and people often married closer to family in those days. Um, Rebecca becomes Isaac's wife. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking. So he's, he's praying the prayer, and as he's praying the prayer, here comes Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. She comes out with her jar on her shoulder. Verse 16 says she's beautiful. It says she's never been married. Verse 17, the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my Lord. And they often use the word my Lord. You see it's a lowercase l uh, as a way of saying sir. Drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they finish drinking. That's exactly what he hoped the woman would say in his prayer. So she quickly entered her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. And notice what the servant... Meanwhile, the man is gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. So he's just prayed this. And then it happens the second after he prays it. And he's looking at it almost in disbelief. Like, is this... Is this really the answer to my prayer? Sometimes, sometimes God answers our prayers and we look at Him in disbelief. As if we can't believe God's actually doing what we, what we asked Him to please do. Uh, sometimes, I don't know if it's weak faith or just forgetting how strong God is, but He's, he's just finished the prayer and it happens and He's almost in disbelief that it, it has gone exactly as He prayed it would. When the camels had finished drinking... He took a gold ring weighing a half shekel, two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And notice, she's obviously from a family of hospitality because she doesn't hesitate. She says, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. So she's got that character quality he was praying about. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. In the rest of the chapter, she takes him back to the house. She, he will meet her brother Laban, who will become a an important person in the rest of Genesis. Um, 
when Abraham's family again comes back to this area. But he tells them all the story. He tells them how Abraham sent him back to find a, a wife and how he prayed at the well and how Rebecca came out at just that moment. And it felt like God has guided the whole situation. And, and will Rebecca come back and be Isaac's wife? And Rebecca and the family agree, this sure seems to be from God. And she agrees to go. And so by the end of the chapter, Isaac and Rebecca are married uh, and the next generation has begun. So that's Genesis 23 and 24. Abraham's wife Sarah passing on and getting a wife for his son Isaac. What do we learn from all that? I've got three things maybe we can take away tonight. Number one, taking care of family is one of our most important tasks. You see Abraham doing that here, don't you? You see him as his wife passes on buying a burial place, a place where their family, not only for her, but for others in the future, can be buried here in this new land, this new home. Isaac, finding a wife for his son Isaac, making sure the promises of God will continue into that next generation. There's a really strong statement in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 5.8. And the whole, whole chapter is about widows and how the church was supposed to help with widows. And, and here in the middle of it, there's this principle that I think extends even beyond widows. It says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is a really strong statement, isn't it? That, that part of our responsibility in life is to try to take care of the family God has put around us. And we can't always do that by ourselves, and I understand that. But God wants us to be the first line of support, if we can be, for our families. And that extends to husbands and wives. We're supposed to love each other as Christ loved the church. There's a self-sacrifice that goes into taking care of our spouses. It goes into kids. If you have kids and, and want to take care of them in any way, there's a self-sacrifice that goes into that. Some days it's more enjoyable than others, and sometimes it's more frustrating than others. But you're... you're Pouring yourself into, into your, the family God has given you. If you have aging parents and aging grandparents, you, you sacrifice yourself to try to give, give them what they need to make sure they have what they need. There's this principle in Scripture that God wants us to especially make sure we're taking care of our families. Sometimes people are tempted to think um, that they want to do more than that. That they, you know, I want to I wanna, I wanna do big things. I, I, I don't want to gear myself down to, to only, put quotes around that, only take care of my family. Well, if, if you did nothing else in life than take care of your family, you've done a good thing. We talk about Noah sometimes and how Noah, uh, he's called a preacher of righteousness in the New Testament. And the only ones that seem to listen to him are his family. <laughs> his three sons and their daughters get on the ark with him. It doesn't mean Noah was a failure. Noah obeyed God and he took care of his family. One of your most important missions in life is your family. The family God has put in your life of all generations. So let's not forget that. Let's not forget that in the desire to serve God in all sorts of ways. And I hope we all can. I hope we can serve God in all sorts of ways. But let's not leave the family piece behind. That's an important part of our mission. And it's one you have in your family more than anybody else. It's one I have in my family more than anybody else. Let's not leave that behind. Number two. The reality of angels' work jumps out at me in this section. We've seen angels all over the story of Abraham, haven't we? When, when Hagar runs away into the desert in Genesis 16, an angel speaks to her. 
When when she leaves the second time in Genesis 21, an angel shows up and speaks to her. When Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, Genesis 22, an angel speaks from heaven. So we've seen angels as messengers. In Genesis 18 and 19, you remember the three, they looked like men to Abraham. The three men who came by, angels, as we find out in the next chapter, in chapter 19. They come to Abraham, and not only are they messengers about what they were going to do at Sodom and Gomorrah, they were the agents of God's judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, God had given them the, the power. They said, we're going to destroy this place. And so we've seen angels as messengers. We've seen them as, as uh, agents of God's judgment. If you remember when Jesus comes again, uh, second, uh, second Thessalonians chapter 1 describes as Jesus coming with his angels in flaming fire. So they're going to have a role in, in eternal judgment as well. We also see in this section um, that they're going to be part of God's providence. But let me first put up here Hebrews 1.14. This is the classic verse about what, what angels are and what they do. I just put verse 13 up here to let you see the context that he's talking about angels here. And then I'm going to read verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? Talking about angels. So they're spirits. Let's stop with that phrase. They're ministering spirits. They're, they're, they're spirits in the spiritual world. Sometimes God has allowed them to be seen by physical eyes, uh, but they are spirits and they're ministering. They're, they're servants. They serve God. And, and let me keep reading here. Sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So they are serving God for God's people. And that could mean all sorts of things. You see in the Bible, sometimes they, they act as protectors. Sometimes they act as, uh, as messengers. Sometimes they are acting in leading the way and guiding the way. Angels do all sorts of things that God wants them to do. It's not just, uh, this is real. There's a spiritual world that we don't always think about, but that God is very active and working. And a lot of times the way God carries out his plan is through angels. And so here in this section then, the reality of angels' work, including God's providence. That word providence we use to explain how God ties events together. And and that's what the angels were doing here in Genesis 24, what this angel was doing. Remember Genesis 24, 7, Abraham said to his servant, God will send his angel before you, and you'll take a wife for my son from there. When later, when the servant told the story to Rebekah's family, he's telling the story, he says, this is what Abraham said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful, and you will take a wife for my son from my relatives and from my father's house. Sometimes God uses angels to, to guide the path to tie events together, just the right time, just the right place. Maybe if, if we take something like, what do we do with that? Just a reminder, God really is working in his world. And, and, it, and there really is, a, there really is this, this spiritual world where God is acting. And things don't just happen by happenstance. My prayer for all of us as we enter a new week is that God will, God will send his angel before us to guide the path, whatever, whatever that is for this week, that God is leading the way. And I hope that's our prayer for ourselves. Number three, there is great blessing in following God. Hope we don't forget that. We, when we follow God, we're following the best path of life. We're following for this life and the next one. 
And way back in Genesis 12, when God said to Abraham, or Abram at that time, leave and follow me and I will bless you. It's so great to be able to get to chapter 24 and Abraham is old, advanced in years, in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. I think we'll find that to be true of us as well. That if we will walk with God throughout our lives, we'll find that we are blessed in every way as well through Him. That doesn't mean life will be perfect. Um, in fact, I can almost promise you it won't be. There will be challenges down any path. But the Christian path will have the path of strength. will have the path of God alongside you to meet the challenges of life. But just like Abraham, we're called. We're called to follow God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 says we are called through the gospel. That when you and I hear the gospel, we, we're not going to hear an audible voice perhaps like Abraham, but we will hear the gospel. The gospel that says Jesus died for you and give your life to follow Him and receive forgiveness in Him. He calls us to follow Him through the gospel. And when we go, as Ephesians 1.3 says, He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. And my, my guess is the further we get down the path, the more we realize that the more we realized that even when I didn't see it, perhaps, there were blessings God was giving me. Abraham had some tough years, didn't he? Had some years of questions. Why haven't things happened the way I thought they would? Why haven't things happened the way I, I think God was saying they would? But he's able to look back now and see God tied it all together. He was blessed in every way. There is great blessing in following God. Let's not forget that. Let's not let the world make us forget that in all the craziness of life. Let's make sure we stand along God every step of the way. If we can help you in any way tonight, we'd sure love to do that. If you have anything you'd like to talk about privately, we'd love to talk with you privately, pray with you privately. But maybe you'd like to come before the church family tonight. If this is the night you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, we'd love to see you make that biggest decision of your life. Have your sins washed away, to be united with Jesus and all the blessings that come through Him. You'll never regret that. Or if we can pray for you about anything going on in your life. There's people in this room, we, all, we love each other. We're trying to be on each other's team. If we can pray for you, we would love to pray for you tonight. If we can help you in any way publicly, you're invited to come to the front now while we stand and while we sing.